Pod Clubhouse. Attention all passengers. The temperature outside is minus 119 degrees Celsius. We are six years, nine months, and 26 days from departure. For your personal safety, be prepared to brace. This is Paul. This is Kat. And we are here to talk about the premiere of the second season of TNT's Snowpiercer. This one was made right on top of the, the first season. So it's a good way to make TV, especially when you have little kids in it, <laughs> so that the kids don't get too big. And you get two seasons almost right on top of each other. It seems like the last season just ended, and here we are watching the beginning of the second season. Yeah, they timed that well for quarantine, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. I'd also like to mention that we're adding a third host to our podcast, Inez, as I call her, Vivar, from our Stand podcast. I invited her over to this podcast, and she thought that'd be cool. And I introduced her to the whole world of Snowpiercer, so she jammed that into about three days. So welcome, It was a ride. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, I I see what you did there. (laughs) Did you You prepare to brace? I (laughs) did. I'm going to come ready with a segment just of uh, Snowpiercer-related puns next time. You don't know what kind of can you just open, Paul. But thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Inez is a is a pun collector. She, she, she loves a good pun. Oh, I can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, we are starting with the premiere of the second season. This one is called A Tale of Two Trains. <laughs> I did. <laughs> uh, we're going to start the actual content here in a second. But I, but when Andre was doing the opening narration and he mentioned the word trainsmanship, I cringed just a little. I was like, come on, don't get lame on me here with words like trainsmanship. Come on, guys. I did notice that too. But I was like, I love David Diggs. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, and I laid it, you know, his character laid it. So I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna let that slide. <laughs> Caroline's with me. She's like, trainsmanship. You know, it's it's not a true sci-fi show without a little bit of cringe yeah. like that. So I embraced it, and I'm ready for it. Ooh, you embraced it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Leighton, I mean, he must have taken like a second off to give the narration because where we left him, and we're going to start this whole podcast with a where we left them moment, just so that we can recall where everybody's at. He was at the tip of the spear there trying to keep whatever is in Big Alice in Big Alice and whatever's in Snowpiercer in Snowpiercer in the tail section there with a gaggle of other characters. Is there anything uh, left over from last season that you um, are looking for with with Leighton going into this season? I think we discussed it, but it seems that it's, it's continuing in this, at least with this pilot or this pilot, this uh, episode um, that he, his plans don't always go (laughs) go according to plan, like not well executed. (laughs) Um, And so I wonder like in terms of like the leadership role, he might fulfill that, but I don't know. So I guess, I don't know if it's a new question I'm having, but Given the way it ends here, I'm curious to see like Layden and also like the leadership role that he has, and also um, I guess the Mel, him and Mel too. I think, and because without her, it seems like he was understanding a little bit more. I don't know. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think I do. It's like there's this remnant in him of wanting to go back to some form of democracy. I think in the few hours that Layton has been in charge, he's starting to come around to seeing why Melanie's one person in charge model made some amount of sense for as long as it did. I mean, democracy's uh, 
fantastic idea, <laughs> and, I, and I hope they get around to it. Uh, I just don't know that they're going to going to get there. What do you think, Ines? Yeah, I think he was taken by surprise. I can see moments in his face where he's just kind of stunted and confused um, as to why this things are just not falling into place. Um, so I do feel like he was unprepared, disorganized. He spent a lot of time being very inspiring, and I was told I was inspired as fuck in season one by him. <laughs> and I totally would have been right there in the telly front. I, I'm like till at this point, you know. But I think that he didn't know, and so it was. Uh, uh, I, I'm ro- going to root for him. I think that he does have skills of what it takes to get there. But yeah, same thing. I think he's just had his epiphany. I forget at what point in the. Um in Game of Thrones, I, every every show I talk about, I can I can relate it back to Game of Thrones for some reason. But there's the there's the idea that 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 I think Robert mentions the idea of something of it's it's one thing to win a kingdom, it's another thing to rule it. <laughs> and uh, you're right. I think the the idea of him being well prepared to do battle and win the kingdom that was all fine, but running it's a totally different thing. Yeah, which I think will be will be cool to see in season two. I, I was wondering like where they were going to go with this. And so I think I always like when kind of the, the opposition that were like, you know, in the first season kind of team up in the, the next few seasons or down the road. So maybe it'll be, be a new um, like partnership between him and Mel and against, you know, Wilford and the other the um, Alice train. So I'm excited for it. Speaking of Mel, when last we saw her, she was being thrown off a train. <laughs> <laughs> And luckily, that train stopped right next to her. The train that's never supposed to stop, that's the one that stopped. <laughs> just, oh, my just God. Right I choked. Right. Oh. Yeah, that was... Uh, did any of you see uh, Mortal Engines, the movie Mortal Engines? Yes. I have not. You have not? Uh, it had very similar visuals. The idea that the world is too inhospitable, so people have cobbled together these moving cities, right? And if your city's bigger than the other city that that's out there, then it has like the ability to like swallow it up, sort of like Big Alice did with Snowpiercer. So that imagery sort of resonated with me when when I saw this. That's I guess that's a real going idea in apocalyptic um, <laughs> literature, gobbling up other things. So with regard to Mel, we know that, that she's going to run into her daughter. This episode shows how that's going to start to work out. <laughs> and I'd like to ask you guys um, about the the bomb and the and the snow at some point. So, mm-hmm. so put that in the back of your, your brains. When we get into the question period, those are things that, that I am not clear on at all. But yeah, so she's off the train, needs to get back in the train. Her suit's no good. That's where we left Mel. Now, I mentioned there's a whole gaggle of characters back in the tale ready to defend their turf. Well, kind of. This ne- next person isn't re- exactly ready to defend it. She- she'd open it all up if she could. And that is Ruth. You mentioned the idea of needing partners that he can trust to run the train. Ruth might be one of those partners, as it turns out. Yeah, it's funny. I think I wrote um, a lot of notes like... Uh... Ruth finds a new purpose? Question mark. I, you know, because I think we spoke a lot in the in the in the about the first season where because she it was a lie, you know, with Melanie and, and the Wolford uh, illusion, uh, she felt betrayed. But it's because you know I think we alluded to like she needed a purpose, especially in that kind of apocalyptic world where there's probably like you feel like you have no purpose yeah. <laughs> or like there's no point of you know they're just going around and around. And so I think. Res- Ruth's character like at the heart of it she just needs some like I realized in this episode 
because I guess we'll get into, you know, like the pregnant, that, mm. that's out of the bag. Um, and, and then she like jumped on that and just was like, Hey, I can do this now. Like, it just felt like, Oh, she like beeline for purpose, you know, with the, who's the, I forgot the Zara. Zara. Yeah. So I, I was like, Oh, Ruth's just one of those characters that just really needs to feel like wanted and needed. And, but it's going to be useful, I feel like. And so, um, I think there is still distrust just because I mean, what she did and, and what she was willing to do, but Layden, I think wants to trust her and hopefully, but she, he did leave her out of that. And I think she doesn't do well when that happens. And so I was like, Ooh, like, let's, I don't know. That's kind of up in there. I don't know how, how you guys felt about it, but I got those vibes. <laughs> yeah. Like Inez, did you, did you notice the moment when they're, when they're in big Alice and they're talking to the boss and, and they mentioned the blonde from hospitality, that means Ruth. He doesn't say anything like, oh, yes, Ruth, I love her, or anything that would make you think like he has nearly the affection for her that she must have for him. Uh, did that register with you in any way? Yeah, I did. I did notice that. Um, but I also have been figuring out that a lot of Ruth's purpose, like, uh, you know, just you know, along with what Kat's saying, I agree that, that she's, she kind of, she feel, needs to feel significant and have purpose. And she realizes how fragile the entire ecosystem is, even though she's not a scientist and she's really familiar in tune with human behavior. And she brings a lot of validity into this space of, of concern. And I think more than anything, she's just happy to be alive and she does have <laughs> Wilfred to thank for that. And so uh, building her whole culture and promoting, you know, her thankfulness to that was just something that she needed to kind of help her get through but you know that's just it's just me trying to understand ruth (laughs) (laughs) i think you're right like uh last uh season on on the podcast kat and i kept bringing up that she bears a a strong resemblance to certain characters from downton abbey did you ever watch that ines i did not well it takes place in england around world war one sinking of the titanic like that era and it tells the story of of the classist society there where they still had the, the lord system the peerage uh, system still has a lot of sway the uh, labor and 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 that has not made its um risen up and gotten its voice in government just yet then there's the the working class people and and what they deal with uh, trying to run this house for these very well-off people and ruth fits into that remarkably well on the service side not so much on the lord and lady side and her her willingness to submit to that caste system basically yeah and enjoy it or, or at least just i don't know she feels at home there or comfortable maybe that system says to people like ruth you want some somebody to care for here we <laughs> care for me <laughs> and, and uh so yeah you might hear us bring that up again later this season it's just the comparison is an easy one to make i also agree with anez when she said that she may not be a scientist but i feel like maybe it's like the social aspect of it because she she kept bugging Layden, hey we got to make an announcement we got to address the passengers and he was just like oh we'll do it later we'll do it later and she understands the people on the train more than he does or at least like maybe a certain uh like the first class you know the first through third and and so she was really pushing him like we got to do this or there's going to be real unrest so i think she is valuable in, in that regard so that's and a I good think, point yeah yeah i mean she's a b and b manager by by that's her history that, or an owner so service 
dealing with people, dealing with people that are, that are in a mindset to complain and have things go the wrong way and, and all that kind of stuff that's built into who she was. Whereas he was a, a detective, a cop, you know, someone that's accustomed to having some amount of clout and it's like, well, we're going to do it my way and that's the way it's going to be done. And that's it. There are leadership qualities there that you need in order to do that, but much different than someone that is trying to appease people and keep them happy. That's an element that's completely missing from what he's he's already going to be able to bring to the table. As if um, we've never seen a leader be sporadic and uncontrolled, right? I mean, there's always somebody around uh, our leaders in our env- current environments and societies that has somebody there to be their bumper car walls, you know, and, and keep them focused and keep them online. And, and I the think system Ruth, works anyway. When, right. <laughs> and I think even in this most extreme system, Ruth is uh, extremely valuable in that. I'm always, I, I feel like, Paul, you and I have worked together for over a decade in all kinds of stuff. But and, and one thing I'm consistently complaining about is the lack of change management from leadership. And I love Ruth that she is so on top of this because that's like, okay, there's the me in this scenario. <laughs> because gosh, like, come on, to listen to her. That's true. It, like, yeah. I can see that too. And I, and I feel glad to have her presence there because it is all out of control right now. With her back there are other minor characters like Roche, the brakeman, the head brakeman, valuable guy to have on your side because all the other brakemen look up to him except for Osweiler, but he's a piece of shit, so no one cares. <laughs> you also have Till back there who is finding her way post breakup with Jinju and finding how her how her morals and, and things equate to she wants to protect people, but she was on the wrong side of it before, but here she is wielding a, a tomahawk <laughs> ready to go let's see a more complicated guy that's oh, mike? sorry pike yes oh, pike, pike. i was like oh, mike <laughs> <laughs> mike didn't make it uh no pike now ah man he's so hard to sum up right because it's like he's on your side, but he's so hard to trust. It's like you have a, you have anybody in your life that you can trust with only the largest things, right? Like, would they come to a funeral? Okay, yes, I would trust them to do that. But would you trust them to like, you know, pick up the pizza on the way home if they said that they were gonna? No, probably not. <laughs> you know, you have anybody in your in your life like that? I think I think Pike's kind of like that guy. Like, I think everyone has some form in that way. And we probably are that to some people too. (laughs) Um, And yeah, you know, sometimes you're just wishy-washy in a way, but um, yeah, he does seem like that. And I also think he's a cool character because I think, you know, like he was already open, like already bartering in this episode and like he managed to get, you know, a a join and then they're like, oh yeah, we can use you. So like, I know he's probably providing more of like a little bit of comic relief, but I also think he's a wild card Um, I wonder wonder how, um, I feel like he might possibly sell, like, you know, sell you out depending on what he can get. And I think in the Wilford, uh, Wilfred world, it's going to be fun to like, oh, if he learns about these kind of characters like Pike, he'll use that against them, you know, just, I don't know, but hopefully he'll come out good in the end, but who knows, you know? 
maybe I'm just like overly optimistic, but I feel like <laughs> as much of a wild card as it was kind of uncertain how he would fall in all of this decision making parts in season one, he still went into the drawers and trusted Layton. You know, when he came out and they were bartering with him, he he was still, after everything, was still ended up on the front line trying to um, make this happen. And he's still on the front line right now. So I feel like ultimately, like he's just going to try to enjoy the spoils of his uh, of what he's won. But I feel like I am going to go ahead and give him credit for being more loyal to the well-being of the tail culture uh, than anything else. But maybe I'm just overly optimistic. We'll see what season two brings out. He's definitely a, a chaos agent, I would say. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe also, I think I, I just want drama in the sense of maybe Wilfred will think he is one to turn and then he can kind of also be like a double agent type thing, you know, because all your points are fairness. Like, I would like him to be that and he probably will be or hopefully, but I, I just want him to be in play in some way in that regard, I guess. I think he always will be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on what you have for him, he'll he'll listen. <laughs> All right, getting away from the tail, or let's say moving up train, we have uh, Miss Audrey hanging out in the night car. She's not really a combatant, per se. In the finale from last season, I don't know if you guys watched that recently, but I do know, actually, that Inez watched that recently, like maybe hours ago. But the hypnosis that she did with uh, Melanie, that continues to leave me with just a ton of questions that I want to get to probably won't get it this this episode but hopefully we do this season about whatever the nature of their relationship yeah. you know where they they got to have known each other before the train you know there seems to be too much there I was thinking of you, Paul, when I was watching this episode, because what stood out to me, um, like you mentioned that Ruth was just the blonde from, you know, hospitality, but uh, Wilfred makes it a point to say, oh, Miss Audrey, when he, you know, he, he gets his scotch and she, you know, made it a point to tell Layden, like, he, this is not the only thing he's going to take from you. Like, and then just getting the Mel, like what Mel says, like, oh, you're not going to do this to me anymore. And like, it seems like they have like PTSD of Wilfred and I wonder what they what they dealt with in, in that regard, like in, before the train and also maybe what they needed to do to take the train. Um, and you alluded to the fact that like in the first season that they must have had a pact or something, or they did something um, because their relationship was always a little bit weird. And I got those vibes in this first episode as well. Yeah. When you were, when you were just talking, it made me think of uh, later on this episode when Wilford says that he plucked her, meaning Mel, off of the farm, fixing tractors when she was 17. And then the way that Mr. Wilford had this kind of odd affection sound in his voice when he mentions Miss Audrey makes you wonder if somehow they weren't both in his orbit for different purposes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, considering that the night car was originally supposed to be more brothely than it turned out to be, and that Audrey was always in charge of it, kind of answers my question without really informing me too much. So that's what I'm thinking, that just that they were women of similar similar age around this man who had different needs for them, but I don't know more about it than that. As you're talking through it, Paul, it's kind of make, giving me like vibes from, um, what's that show I really enjoyed watching? <laughs> Deadwood, I think, like Old Wild West. And, and he's the guy who owns the one like big, the bar with the brothel. And yeah. he's got his leading lady there who runs that 
piece of it. And it totally gives me those kind of like old Western type of vibes, but just in this apocalyptic scenario on a train. Um, I don't feel like he's going to be a good man with how traumatized and how extreme it all is. I still have lots of questions about what can he possibly be doing or have done to them continuously for them to be so fearful of him and for Melanie to make such a strong decision to leave him behind. And so I'm really curious to see what kind of villainous direction we're going here, especially considering, you know, (laughs) love the actor. (laughs) (laughs) That was always our deal because uh, because we knew Sean Bean was associated with the show. We just didn't know when he was going to make his appearance, which was never last season. <laughs> so, so um, in fact, in fact, we felt a little robbed because Kat and I had access to the screeners like the whole batch very early on and we just plowed through it one episode at a time very methodically and then we post our last podcast and people start chiming in about having seen sean bean and we never saw him and so it was it was a part of his that was like a preview or a commercial or something that played with the aired version that wasn't part of the screener so uh we were robbed we were oh what a bummer i know yeah I think it was funny because when you when you mentioned uh, Western, I just like an image of Sean Bean in a in a cowboy hat just popped up. And I was like, I wish we had that. Uh, are you thinking of the Ian McShane guy or the Powers Booth guy? The Ian McShane. Ian McShane. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's quite a bit more of a hard ass. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's the only one that I can think of that's like traumatizing and hardcore and i'm just like melanie seems like such a strong woman and she has a genuine fear um of ever working or dealing with him again at all and i'm very curious to find out what exactly is the reason for that and i think he has to be an ian machine (laughs) type of villain (laughs) you know we'll see well, we'll see. We'll definitely see. Okay, so as we continue moving up train, there are people that weren't really addressed too much in this premiere, like Jinju. She was in the in the finale, but not so much in the premiere that I recall. She was always semi-mysterious in terms of, like, was she informing on Till and, and, and matters like that up the chain to Melanie? The answer was clearly yes. <laughs> um, but where she stands now, what you use she is to the story because she was always more than a bartender even though that's the job they gave her so what is she now i don't know you guys have any question marks about jinju she's uh in charge of all of the agriculture so i think that right now probably her because she understands the importance of keeping this train alive is more than just the mechanics of the train it's about rebuilding the ecosystems to match the output of the people from a scientific perspective and i think that's that's she's been hyper focused on that mission this in time and she's with seeing how everything now looks because of the war that just kind of ran through it all. My guess is she's just going to be focused on that. That's a tough job, especially when you have the person who now considers themselves king, uh, which isn't Andre, which is uh, Mr. Wilford, making such weird and petty demands right off the top. Like, go fetch me this, go fetch me that. And it happens to be the most obscure produce and (laughs) stuff that you can, that's available on the last train on the planet. 
I think that signaled to me, um, I was going to bring it up in, in the thing, but since we were talking about Jinju and she is in charge of all that, I was wondering like the items that he did request, is that just him being, oh, I just want these very random items or is it like, you know, he wanted the eggs and the, and the hen. Is that a signal that not everything is going well on, you know, Alice and they need certain things as like in terms of that, like what is the state of Alice with what they got? Obviously there's a, cause they're a supply train, but like, we don't really know too much about it. So I wonder what they're lacking that they're like, we really needed to like hit Snowpiercer and, and get, you know, get on board. So that was like, just my question with, in terms of like those requests. Cause I know some seem petty, like the Rebecca book and then the scotch was maybe personal, but the other items were like the morphine and stuff seem very specific and maybe signaling a lack of something in, in Alice. I don't know. Good call about the morphine. Do you think that it was an intimidation tactic only, like maybe to kind of hide what might be actually happening in Big Alice? Um, I don't want to jump ahead or... um um you know there's obviously the question of like that big guy who seems like he's kind of engineered and then the doctors that are very creepy mccreeps you know and they've obviously (laughs) been like experimenting and doing a lot of crazy so there's just so many question marks and also i I know we've brought up that we don't know what he's done to melanie and you know audrey in the past but i wonder if some of that could be what he was planning to do or what you know like the experimenting like was that something he did prior to Snowpiercer, like, was he in charge of kind of helming that, like, apocalyptic, like, hey, let's start doing that, and maybe they found out about that, like, I don't know, those were all the questions that were popping up in my head with those little tidbits, like, from the request, and then also just seeing, like, the doctors um, of what they were doing, and then that big dude. (laughs) All right, well, let's put a pin in those, because I definitely want to come back to all that stuff, because I have the same questions, or similar questions about that stuff. So let's just continue running through the rest of the characters. Let's see. Zara is somewhere in the middle of the train being pregnant and staying out of the fight. So there's that. And then we have uh, Bennett and Javier, Javi, they call him for short, up in the up in the engine, in the wayfront. If you remember last season, Javi was sort of a devil's advocate on a lot of the issues that, that Mel was talking about in terms of leading the train. But once he saw how losing the leadership started to work out for his friend, he he flipped and, and saved her. But then at the end, you know, Bennett kind of betrays her a little bit and might have fucked the train completely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit of a betrayal, I guess. Uh, but those two are up in the up in the engine. Yeah, I'm not sure what to make of those two. I don't. If I had to pick people that may not make it through the end of the season, I know that I said this last season. But <laughs> I feel like one of these two is, is is definitely on the on the short list to not survive. What do you guys think of any of that stuff? You know, the engineers have been kind of built up, rightfully so. I will add as untouchables kind of like in a sacred little group right like nobody's allowed to come over here you you know it was closed off Uh, it's been off limits to the whole train all the way up until this point it's such a critical job that i would really hope that they wouldn't (laughs) off anybody but if i had to predict which one mm, i would probably pick bennett Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, he's already kind of believed would be the one that would be most disruptive to, uh, Melanie's, uh, character at this point. Um, cause I'm not 
totally convinced that her connection with him is just like a physical thing. I think that there's like a genuine friendship and kinmanship there. And so, and, and he's already kind of poking holes into, um, into that relationship. So I don't know. I, I'm going to say that I don't want any of them because I really just want everybody to live <laughs> because that's all I want. Uh, and, uh, but if I pick Ben, Ben's the one to go. Bye Ben. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he would mean more to her, Melanie, than Javi, and 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 definitely maybe I, not anymore. Javi saved her life. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if you're keeping score, <laughs> and I don't they, know, but then it looked real good in that shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> That's what I, but I think I think if you guys are right. I think he's going to be the one to go. And I mean, we always make that running joke. Nothing that is said on in these episodes is just said for no reason. And the fact that Wilfred emphasized, oh, is it Ben? Is it Ben? You know, you always had a soft spot for him, or you know, something like alluded to that is like, oh, Ben might be on the chopping block. That's a good call. That's a good call. Almost like he was pissed at Ben for that. Yeah, because I still have a. I, I guess one of my theories from the from the finale episode was I think Wilfred is Alex's dad, but maybe that's not true. I don't know. But so I was like, ooh, is this like a quadruple triangle love thing? Especially with like Audrey, possibly like you guys mentioned. So I don't know. That's not a theory I'd throw away, given the age of everybody and when he became involved in their lives and the just the rancor that, that Mel feels toward him. Or is Ben the dad? Oh, you know. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> hopefully we find out all these all these things. I mean, there were a few questions answered. That, by the way, pretty much rounds up all of our character catch-ups. We didn't see Miles at all. We just need to know that, that he was... Um, he was the kid, and uh, and he might be the reason why they could lose an engineer is because he was training to become an engineer. So we'll see about that. All right, so let's let's kick off with some questions that I have lingering about this episode, and you guys can add in with with yours as well. My first one, though, and this is just a plot point that maybe you guys can help me understand. You know, at the beginning of the episode, it's it's like we don't want to be attached to Big Alice. Big Alice sucks. And then before Mel comes back inside, she puts that bomb that we find out later is triggered if Big Alice tries to disconnect from Snowpiercer, making it so that they can't disconnect, so that they're mated forever now. Why was that the goal? Did you guys absorb why that was better, that they stay connected? I mean, wouldn't Snowpiercer be just fine? Because she had returned control to Snowpiercer with her axe, right? when she cut that line or, or am I missing a point there? I was rewatching it before we did this and I, I don't know if what you're saying negated it, but I know there was mention where, um, they, uh, where she says, Oh, I can't disconnect it. Like that's it. If you do, try to do that, we're going to be running slow. We'll never be able to pick up enough speed to be by ourselves ever again, kind of thing. Oh. So I think at that point, maybe she realized like, Oh, we, we we're going to have to keep with them. I don't know. Did you, is that, well, that would explain it. I mean, the, the, the rationale for keeping both engines would be if some, something had fucked Snowpiercer's engine to the point where it was not going to keep them alive anymore. That would explain why she would make it so that they had to stay together or they both die, pretty much. I don't know if I'm wrong. Uh, did you catch that in us? Because I, 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 let's feel... I'm going to have to rewatch it. I remember in the moment kind of having the same questions, Paul. It's like, wait, why are we, why do we not want this to happen? I thought that was the goal of it, but I, I must've missed it because again, I, I, for Paul said, I binged this in three days. I did it in two. 
<laughs> so all the information is a little bit jumbled. Yeah. That's funny. Well, I think, well, then I guess I'll, I'll confidently say, I think that's what it was because when I was rewatching it, they made a point to say that like, Oh, we're never going to be able to be by ourselves. So I feel like that's why she made that decision. Okay. That makes more sense then. Cause I mean, if she knew that, Wilford would use leaving them stranded as a way to keep them under his boot heel, then taking that away in the way that she did it would be her, her one big move, which <laughs> her daughter did for her. Um, didn't expect that coming. I remember what it was. Okay. I remember what it was. It was that they were going to um, control the brakes, move into the other direction, and then disconnect so that the train was going to be floating back and wouldn't have enough energy and electricity to change its direction the other way. So it was totally like, kind of like, we're just going to leave you stranded. Just like she said, but I, I feel like I remember them talking about like changing momentum of the train intentionally because they could use their brakes and they could use their engine and just move them in the other direction where they wouldn't have power to stop and go back the other way. You're right. Yeah. Go back. If, if you go back to the finale of the first season, a lot of the engine conversation revolves around not having enough power and that their batteries are low and that they need to keep their speed up. And that's the only way for them to rebuild that power is the perpetual motion of the engine refills the batteries. But if they slow down, various things start to go wrong. And I think Mel mentioned, um, because she said, she's like, oh, I drained all our energy. I think from, from the finale, she's like, you were right, Ben. That's what he wanted us to do. So I think she knew like she had fucked up. <laughs> ah, yeah. All right. Okay. So I think that's it, people. If, if any of you were confused, just go with that theory for a while until we get proven wrong that Snowpiercer was out of juice and they were going to fuck them over by sending them in the wrong direction and just leave them basically listing on the train track until the system failed. That was their big threat. And so putting the bomb in, in that place locked them together to prevent that from happening so that they would have to work things out and Snowpiercer would get the benefit of having Big Alice as a secondary engine. There we go. All right. Let's go and discuss a question that Kat brought up a second ago relating to Mr. Wilford and his role in maybe everything. The way Ruth would have you believe it is that Mr. Wilford identified that the world was headed toward this disaster and that he proactively built a train to save those that he could out of the goodness of his soul. And the more that I watch this and the more that I see creatures like Icy Bob and shit like that, it makes me wonder if he had a larger role in actually ruining the sky and setting up this whole thing. I hadn't thought about that, but now it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I feel like that's a good theory. Yeah, that would actually be kind of uh, in terms of like show plots that I, I would love that if that was like just like a true villain, you know, like he fucked up the world kind of like, you know, the climate change, all that kind of stuff. And then like he had to basically like, oh, shit. And then like built this to protect himself, not necessarily for the good of, you know, because of the good of his heart. It's just like, oh, I want to I want to live. I like that theory. <laughs> yeah. Not that he meant to freeze the world out, but just. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe that he meant to put the world in a bad spot. <laughs> Not kill everybody, per se. But, his own gain kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if he was just uh, some sort of vicious businessman before 
before things went wrong. I mean, that's the the backstory here is 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 that some organization tried to correct global warming by cooling things down, but it went too far. So that's my question mark is, was he involved in that group that tried to correct? So was there at the point when the, when it was decided that things had gone wrong and that they needed to, you know, make another plan? What do you think, Inez? Do you think he's he's uh, in on it or, or do you think he's he's just smart and had the resources to build the train and that was it? My guess is he probably, very likely, he was he was involved in the research and application of this experiment of saving the world, and he probably just made sure to build in a contingency plan, like any <laughs> uh, any good uh, researcher or businessman does. And it's like, well, if uh, worst case scenario simulations that come up and build a plan against that. I mean, it's such a sophisticated system, and it definitely has. Had to have been being built while the science and research was going on with the global solution. So I feel like he might be involved. I just, I don't think it was an intentional action to wipe out the whole world so that he could just have his, you know, live out his best final live on the train to, and just take the whole world out with him. I think that's a little extreme because it sounded like he did not intend for a long-term survival and he just wanted to to go out in a party on his train and mm-hmm. and that's what led us to this point here and he's only found the will to survive these last uh, seven years because he's not on his train so this is his seven year will to live because he just he wants to fucking die on his fucking train guys like just let him be but i don't think he did the whole thing intentionally like that is a whole other like level like let me just extinct the earth so that i could have my own world on a temporary train like for what purpose if you didn't think he was going to make it out to the end here's what got me thinking about this aside from icy bob and and that kind of stuff was the dog jupiter Mm. i remembered from high school that jupiter was the Roman king of the gods, that he was basically when Rome sort of absorbed the Greek gods, they renamed them, and Jupiter became Zeus, the boss of the gods. Um, what I didn't remember was that one of the things that Jupiter was, um, you know how they credit different phenomena to the gods. So like one god's in charge of the water, one's in charge of this, one's in charge of that. Well, Jupiter, his domain was the sky. And so the idea that Wilford would be the lord, the owner, the master of the king of the sky (laughs) just got my mind turning, you know, that he had some role in in ruling what happened to the sky because he ruled this dog. (laughs) <laughs> Does that make sense? Do you follow my, my, my logic there? Is that too far? I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. I think that's a good theory, Paul. I, I think he's arrogant enough. I, I was just thinking when she was like, oh, sweet Jupiter or whatever. Um, I was like, wow, that's that's not a usual dog name for on a TV show. So no. <laughs> yeah. So I think I, w- I was like, whoa, we're, you know, uh, it, it did catch my eye or like my ear. And I was like, uh, so now that you're saying that again, that golden rule of they don't put things in TV shows just for fun. Sometimes they do, but I think there's like little tidbits that always stand out that will hopefully, if it's a good show, will come back and mean something. So I feel like having the dog, like you said, of, of Wilfred, and then you just said all that, like, 
I don't know. That could be brilliant in a way, if it works out that way, or if it's just like someone like Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. The writer's dog was named Jupiter. Right. Uh, it's, it's just a simple matter, <laughs> really. Uh, so that was my big question about, about Wilford and that part of his backstory at this point, though. Um, they did a pretty good job in this episode giving us some of those missing links in terms of how he got the train and how he got well, not exactly how he got Alexander, but close enough. Um, there's, there's still a little bit of missing linkage in there. But uh, I think we can assume that he acquired her at some point. She willingly came in just the span of time between when Snowpiercer took off and when Big Al's took off. The big question, though, about that is, do you think that Melanie is correct? That Alexandra is not there on that train because... You know, Mr. Wilford had a, a nice streak in him and decided to save her life. Do you believe that she is there simply because, like Inez said just a second ago, he wanted to die on his train and he knew that he needed this very certain chess piece to get it back? And that piece's name is Alexander Cavill. Just given the way he he, he was able to kind of um, get back on Snowpiercer and um, if it is sort of like a revenge thing, like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, like, a, like, oh, I wanted to be on my train. Like, you know, revenge is really good. And it's crazy, though, to think, like, I wonder at what point, though, like, was the stealing of the train, you know, with Mel and possibly Miss Audrey, when did that happen? And then he was like, oh, crap, like, I got to go get, you know, I, I go get <laughs> Alex. So she's taking my train. I'm going to use this against her in the future. You know, like when yeah. we catch up on the, so like, that's a lot of manipulation. And so that just kind of keeps me thinking that he is very much a master manipulator. Um, and he's not going to be a redemptive character at all. <laughs> so, um, if he was thinking about that and also given the timeline, like, did he already know that Mel was taking over the train if he didn't and then and also was still getting Alex then that means like oh is he the dad because I still have that theory which I I hope will be answered yeah so I think those are the two motivations you know if he is the dad maybe that's why he got her but if not maybe he knew that it was going to be like you said um just uh, collateral in case he needed to use it against Mel because I mean Mel it was like it was a little bit too cheesy on the nose when she was like you can't hurt me anymore you don't got anything I want and then like in walks Alex <laughs> <laughs> what do you think Inez? Steven and I uh Kat Steven's my husband so he and I watch these and chat about them all the time so I'll bring some of his feedback into these sessions but his first thought went to um leverage that this is purely leverage that he needed against Melanie to get his train back my notes was is this her father or is there some kind of other familial connection between him and her that she would have been high up on his radar to find and bring along with him in this ride? And then my more sinister dark side ends up going, is this also, is this like a sick way of like ensuring reproduction in the future? Like, is it like that kind of bad? Like really kind of digging into like some sick dark corners of possibilities, even though it hurt to like think it, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to put that up other possibility in there all that is good material i mean i mean even the dark stuff say his train plan didn't work seven years is a long time to wait for, for your for your train plan to, to catch up to the point when you think it was going to pay off so at some point in there you might have thought man this isn't going to go very well for me and the 40 people i got on my train or however many up to 200 says bennett 
So reproduction might have been part of it. Um, although he seems kind of nihilistic about the their chances of continuing. You know, the way he was like, this is the world. This is what we got. This is, there's nothing more to it than that. Like you guys said, the, the idea of just dying on his train, he, that might be all he wants. He doesn't want to die out in the cold. He wants to die on his train and that's good enough. The end result for humanity, the future of humanity is less of a concern. Yeah, he really enjoys people knowing that he's Wilford, he's alive, look at me. He gets a lot of joy out of that, that they strategize their conversations around what's going to help him win on his side, possibly, you know, like they know that he's very narcissistic and self-centered. And so that's probably all he wants is just to bask in that continued glory. And maybe once he gets that, maybe he will chill the fuck out and back off. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was really upset when Mel and she made it a point because I think she knew it would hurt him to bring up that I was posing as you. And he was like, like, that was the most outrageous thing that she said in the whole thing. Like, that was what he was like, how could you? <laughs> like, And so I found that funny. Um, but I think it speaks to, you know, that narcissistic side of him. But like, I don't know. I think there's I, I like the fact that this especially with Sean Bean playing him and he's able to play like really charismatic, like where you, you love him and even as kind of like the villainy, but then he can play like, you know, that villain. And then he has his redemptive qualities, even in this kind of thing. Like I still kind of love him, but I don't know. That's why I think there's so many possibilities and I'm really curious to see how it's going to play out. Were you at all hoping that Melanie's assessment of him would have been less correct? The man that she described is pretty much the man that we got in terms of just in the few minutes we got with him, how he represented himself, his priorities, his outlook on things. Whereas, you know, we had other people thinking different things. Let's say Ruth's version of Mr. Wilford <laughs> that are not seeming to line up. Were you hoping for something more complicated or did you see something more complicated other than what we know Sean Bean is capable of as, as an actor? Like, the, say, the moments with Alexandra outside of the, her role as an engineer her role as his top lieutenant also seemed to be where he showed some actual affection toward her, not necessarily fatherly in the most, you know, um, strictest sense, but he did seem nice to her and seemed like he had, he had been, well, grooming is a loaded word, but, but grooming her <laughs> for, for where she is and how she is now. So yeah, did, did you guys want his character to be any more complicated than he is or do you think that he is but we just haven't seen it yet or, or something in between so alex we i hear her call him dad in the episode so there definitely is some kind of like emotional connection that she's got with him and i think that that didn't come um easily and i didn't get a sense that it was said ironically or sarcastically it felt like very natural when even though the conversation was a little bit interrogating um somebody at that time you know when, and she just casually says dad and so i wrote down is this train dad or is this bio dad ah, um good call. but so so either way there there is some kind of level of affection in there but i do think i i, th I think that using the word grooming um, might be appropriate in this case because we clearly see him lying about Melanie's intentions and how they they got there. You clearly, you know, the, the stuff that we think is, is a lie because we're choosing to trust Melanie's version in this, or at least I am. I think he's proven to be enough of a psycho so far. Um, you know, <laughs> just very arrogant is really cringy. But what do you think, Kat? It's funny because I, I, I think uh, 
I, I don't know. I, I guess we've kind of been waiting for this uh, moment uh, for a long time or, you know, 10 episodes. Right. Um, and Mel and then um, Wilford coming together. I was like, oh, it's going to be like amazing and everything, which, you know, it, it was, yeah. but it was different. And it, I think I actually and I didn't even write it down because I didn't I just didn't even want to think it or put it out there. But I was like, oh, it was kind of underwhelming in my eyes. But then I think it might be because of that, because she told us all along, like, he's this person. And I don't know, I got, I thought he was going to like deliver it in a different way or just try to be different. I guess I thought he was going to be, I guess, a little bit two-faced and like, I don't know, maybe kind of manipulate Mel in that way. Like, why do you, why are you trying to make me seem like the bad guy? But no, like he is what who he is. And I guess in a way it's kind of good that I was played like that. And maybe that's why I felt that way because it's like, Oh, he is this kind of asshole, I guess, and like psycho. And, um, and then everything that he said was so, it seemed simple, but there was, you can tell there's just like some bloated stuff behind it, you know, like everything, it was like purposeful. Like I, maybe that was by design that it was just kind of like straightforward, but then it's like, we'll just wait for the season to get going and see why um, all these things have maybe double meanings. I don't know if I if if I'm off base with that, but that's how I was kind of reading that first interaction between Mel and um, Wilfred. I found a lot of that stuff trying to discern the double meanings and any kind of surface like symbolism interesting for him, especially say like you mentioned that he was angry that she used his name it's interesting how she did that is she a had him live in the engine and on snowpiercer the engine is in the front of the the train Mm -hmm. and she kind of made him like this wise sage slash oracle that they would only turn to if they needed top level advice otherwise he was too busy being a genius saving us all to you know wallow in the in the concerns of mortal men <laughs> and that's a pretty big reputation to have mm-hmm. and then when we meet him he is like she described in private his train is driven by an engine at the back of the train where his quarters were he did live in the engine but it was in the back so it, it was it's like everything that she had said about him to the train was actually opposite <laughs> right he wasn't wise he wasn't there to help them solve problems i don't know i just found those little little things like why was his engine in the back i guess it's so they could have that big mouth thing in the front i, I maybe i'm looking too deep into just Although- little, little things like that yeah, although while you're like, I'm thinking about it now and like as we discuss it, like what if he came off as like he because he came off kind of like nonchalant, like, hey, like what's up? You know, like in a, in a way, right? Like obviously there's like a lot of loaded stuff like you took my train and, and all that. But like, you know, even when you mentioned wallow, like he even says like, I'm just taking a wallow like in his bathtub. And it seems like he's also trying to give off this vibe to Mel like, hey, like you took my train. I'm really upset. Obviously, there's stuff going on, but it, it almost seems now that I think about it, maybe I'm thinking too much about it. <laughs> that he wants to maybe not give her the impression that it really irked him like really deep down but i think he's maybe hiding that too with the exterior of being kind of the asshole play you know kind of gives like a playboy vibe ish like yeah. you know like, i don't care whatever like i just love to drink and party and stuff but i think deep down because he we know that he took alex you know as a, as a pawn or whatever piece of some sort and like has made this plan for seven years like there's a lot of complexity to that he's playing one note right now and i think that's not true you know and and i think that might just be to kind of give off that vibe but 
Maybe I'm just reading too much into it now, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> What's a podcast if we don't read into it, right? <laughs> so I've asked a few questions in a row. Kat, did you have anything that stood out to you that you, you would like the panel's uh, help with? So I know I mentioned that Pike might be the wild card, but I actually wrote down because Wolford, you know, he knew, I guess, everybody that was on the train. Maybe he picked them, right? Like he had a sort of a thing with the first class, possibly. Like maybe they did dealings, right? Is what we kind of got an impression of. Yeah. And so I was actually really excited because Andre maybe is actually obviously the real wild card because he's like, oh, I don't know who that is. And I was thinking like if Mel somehow is able to get back on the train or the fact that she knows Andre and they've you know had that whole thing in, in season one and kind of knows how he thinks. I think Andre is going to be the secret weapon of throwing Wilfred off guard, you know, like, cause I think he knows kind of a lot of like maybe Bennett and, and the engineers and, and Ruth and, and, and Miss Audrey, but Andre is the one that he doesn't know anything about. I just, maybe more of a comment and maybe you guys can just see if you got that too, is like, I think that's going to be their strong, I guess their strong point. And I don't know, defeating Wilfred in a way. I don't know. Do you guys feel that way too? He put together the revolution that he didn't even really want to lead. And he managed to beat Melanie, who is probably the smartest person on the show in terms of just tactical and strategic thinking. And he beat her. And so the fact that Wilford doesn't know who he is, that may actually put Melanie, since she is under his thumb right now, in a pretty bad spot. Because he's going to want that information, especially if they keep trying these little forays, <laughs> raids in, into Big Alice. Well, I thought it would put her in a good spot, though, because she knows Andre. And then he, she can just feed Wilford lies about Andre. You know, like mm. knowing what actually Oh, that's a good do. idea. Willingly give up the fact that Andre used to be like a four-star general or, or something like that. Just make up shit that make him sound like the most yeah. intimidating tactician he'll ever run across. Something, because Andre was always trying to save, like he, he let a failed attempt to go and save her because he knows he needs her. And then like, I think she knows that he need, that she, he, she needs him. And so I feel like they're going to be doing this like two train mind game, like of knowing each other since they, you know, were at odds together is what I'm hoping happens. <laughs> I think that um, touching on a theory of is Wilfred really just blowing hot air into the Snowpiercer community, just kind of capitalizing on his name and the perspective that people have on him. And I think what's really powerful about Leighton is he is already very connected intimately on Snowpiercer and he feels deeply about Snowpiercer. And I think everybody knows that. And he's a very smart guy. He's a, he can see through the bullshit. And Mel, that's why Melanie put him in the drawers to begin with, because he figured it out in just a matter of days, her secret that she had been holding for almost seven years like she acknowledges that as much as she brings to the table uh, from her technical intelligence, uh, biology and mechanics, he brought down the house in just like a week. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Basically, yeah. I mean, it wasn't just a straight off uh, win. He did need a, a hand, but yeah, um, he won. She didn't. And then I do have one more question. Um, and this isn't because we haven't talked about it yet, but in regards to the doctors, because they were 
so creepy. And also I think I mentioned too, but I love the show timeless that would only was one or two seasons. And, uh, Sakina Jeffrey, who was on that show is one of the doctors on the show. So I was so excited to see her there play this kind of weird, like she didn't know doesn't play this kind of role. So it was fun to see that, but rewatching the episode, I caught it this time around when she, they mentioned, uh, when Melanie comes in, um, to get treated, they're like, Oh, someone not in like, a. uh, was it like a bag hat or something? Like basically I think I got the impression that people come into their lab either like dead or they're like against their will is what I felt like. I don't know if you guys caught that. And I was really curious about it because obviously there's been a lot of experimenting and they're like, yeah, through a lot of trial and error, obviously they come up with this goop that heals and you won't even have a scar. So there's a lot going on in there that I hope we get to see in season two. Well, that probably ties into Icy Bob in that they have this magic goop that can make your skin, which has been frostbitten, which depending on how bad it is, will turn black and just like flake off. And it's just like it's missing there forever now if it's not treated correctly. And I don't know that it, I don't even know that you can treat really frostbitten skin quote unquote correctly to prevent that once it's necrotic i think it's gone but they have this magic goop that somehow you recover without a scar and in the same episode we see a guy that can withstand the jets of the of the icy air from the outside blowing on him like it's no big deal it's freezing other people but he's just walking through it those two things have got to be tied together (laughs) don't you think Yeah. And then does that mean there's been obviously preparation for whatever they did to that dude? Are they trying to do it to other people so they can get off, you know, eventually get off the train? And that's how, is that his master plan to go back to the world? (laughs) Right. Like even on Snowpiercer, remember in the first season, there was that Russian or Eastern European sounding engineer. We get introduced to him when the cattle car gets messed up and for a brief moment, he is seen sitting in the car when there's some of the cold air coming in. It's not a lot. It's just enough to to kind of put a frost on the windows and that kind of stuff. He just sits there and just sort of absorbs it. And then in this, we get um, I See Bob. I don't know if either of you guys spent any time on the TNT website, but Snowpiercer has a presence there. And you can leaf through this website where they explain several different cars and their purposes. Like, for instance... I think there was like a Jillian Michaels certified gym somewhere on board the train or something like that. But uh, another one of the cars was devoted to mutation research or something to that effect. So then to see Icy Bob emerge from Big Alice is is not too far off the off the map of what they've provided in other other areas kind of off screen. Why is he so freakishly big? So... (laughs) I, 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 I definitely did the same kind of tie-in that uh, his skin must be more resistant because of this product that these mad scientists have created. Mad scientist vibe, yes, but they also kind of give me like a Fitzsimmons kind of vibe um, <laughs> for those Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fans. So I am like actually on their side, like I like them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for right now, we'll see. But, uh, you know, that was a very ingenious type of product to create in this kind of apocalyptic world. And they have this research lab equipped on this train. That's so cool. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely would imagine that immediately to address the dress of the their world environment would mean immediate experimentation and testing of 
ways to survive from, you know, uh, trying to evolve our most vulnerable piece of our our bodies, which is our skin, is our largest organ. And they've come with a solution to kind of help that. I think that's super cool. But I did write down, you know, I don't know if you guys noticed it or if it was just me, but I thought that the people that I kept seeing from Big Alice were all like really pale. I don't know how much more sunlight or less sunlight they get in comparison to Snowpiercer, but I thought it was like a different kind of pale, almost like their skin looked smoothed out. It could just be me because I'm just rapidly going through this. But then after I learned about the skin goo, it made me wonder, is this possibly something that they're not just using as medicinal way of surviving frostbite? Are they maybe even just evolving their body? Like, do they have other people on the train that they're purposely adding layers of this artificial skin to, to create the population that can sustain the environment, just like you mentioned, Paul. But, but yeah, I'm not necessarily taking it as a bad thing. I think now they're a married train. So (laughs) now it's going to be a shared resource. You know, it'll just be leverage. Um, now that you mention it, and I did notice like Alex looked a little pale, like what you're talking about. Kind like of sunken eyes, pale yeah, skin. Yeah, like everyone looked drained a little bit, like they weren't getting all their nutrients. That's why I guess maybe that's what tipped off like what he was asking for, that type of stuff. I was like, are you guys just have been really lacking in certain things and possibly that experimentation? And so it just seems like it wasn't the fun train to be on train Alice or, um, and then, and then the guy, um, that gets captured, uh, Kevin, you know, he seemed like, Oh, why are you guys even trying? Like, you know, like it just seemed like they've been through some stuff and not like the stuff that Snowpiercer like that compared to what they've been through. It seems like that was, you know, a walk in the park with whatever Wilford shenanigans are going on. So I, now that you bring it up, I don't think you're, you're off. I think that makes sense. Well, the black bag stuff with the doctors, um, which, by the way, their 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 demeanor reminded me of either whenever, at least the way it's represented in TV and movies, whenever either a pure researcher or someone who is like a, say, a medical examiner, someone that's only accustomed to dealing with dead bodies is forced to actually deal with a living person. You know, they, <laughs> they have the same medical training. But they're just not attuned to people. That's the way. a real person. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's how they kind of acted. Do you guys want to talk about snow? Yes. I, I had questions about snow that, as yeah. well. What's your question? I didn't have a specific question other than the same one Melanie has is, well, Melanie probably has way smarter questions than I do about it, but it's like, is this snow? What does this mean? What does this mean for, for the world um, where she gets so hyper-focused that the train's leaving and she has to rapidly still fill the vial to a specific level that she wants it to be. And she's so like focused on the results on it. Uh, it's getting really excited. So of course I already have accepted that she's brilliant and this is important and so you know what do you guys think that where do you think her mind is headed with this snow phenomenon i got tuned in to where bennett said it's too cold to snow anymore Mm -hmm. i I looked that up and apparently that statement is only kind of true in in like the tv sense it can be too cold to snow but in i guess like the real sense it can't be too cold to snow it's more like that the air can be too stable, meaning like if it's cold on the top of the atmosphere and it's cold at the bottom of the atmosphere, then I guess those conditions don't match for snow. 
it, there's got to be some warm in there to create the updraft, you know, the, the rising part, I guess, to keep the air circulating in a way so that snow is formed. I guess I hope a real meteorologist chimes in and says, no, this is the way it works. <laughs> but so my my brief perusal of uh, weather.com and Wikipedia came up with that idea was just that if there is snow actually coming down, then it suggests that there are warmer patches of air there, that it's not all cold all the time. That's my guess, um, which would suggest something is warming it. That would be the sun. That would be a good thing happening. The taking of the sample of it, I wonder what that would tell you. Because, you know, by the time you get it inside, the snow is all melted. So it's not like you can test like a flake and be like, so tell me more, flake. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the water would tell you, wouldn't it? Maybe. um, Maybe. This is just, just rambling. But say certain kinds of particles particulate matters only found in certain parts of the atmosphere or something like that, that if the cloud cover that's helping create this constantly cold state is at a certain level, but maybe these particles come from another level, that would be good news, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't really know the science. Well, the only question I have, because I have the same thing, I think uh, Melanie's going to have way smarter questions and I I have a very vague, like, I just think like, oh, cool, cool plot point ahead. Um, (laughs) Actually, I have a question around Alex took that from her, the vial. And so do you guys think that she has kept it or do you think she's told Wilfred about it? That ties into a question I have for later called my loyalty meter. Because <laughs> right now I think my loyalty meter is probably like 9.8 still toward Wilford, 0.2 <laughs> toward toward Melanie. One of those 0.1s, you know, one of those is getting her frostbite treated. The other one is the fate of the snow sample. It makes sense that she would have kept it. But what do you think, Inez? I think that the snow storyline has given us opportunity to also see the other element which of Alexandra and her mother Melanie and understanding where she might be just because she comes out so cold and then you see kind of like this curiosity she kind of reminds me of a cat you know Alexandra does uh you know that she knows that she can hang out with you and she's gonna get some information. She she trusts Melanie enough to ask her questions and sort of accept the answers, the processing. She's also clearly very smart. Um, I think that her role as being one of the primary caretakers of the Big Atlas train probably will let, lead her to keep the sample. I don't think that she's going to destroy it or sabotage it because she has probably also heard stories of Melanie's brilliance. And there's a reason that Wilfred has spent so much energy talking about her for the full seven years, you know, focus on getting to Melanie. I'm sure that there's lots of information that her daughter has and kind of conflicted between this feelings of betrayal of being left behind, but then also, you know, wanting to exert some revenge and punish at the same time. But her curiosity, I think right now she's sort of processing all of that. I think I agree with all that. (laughs) <laughs> without, without, yeah, without, any, without anything to add <laughs> uh, it's it's complicated mom daughter stuff already especially the age that alex is 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 but then you have the mom that decided to save the world instead of to save you <laughs> which can't make it easier i mean i've never been a teenage girl but i'm just guessing we're not logical 
not as teenage girls. And how old do we think that Alexandra is? I know where she's a teenager and it's been about seven years, but are we inferring that she's around like the age 15, 16? I think so. I was thinking that or like an 18, but I was like, I don't know, maybe we'll get a more, uh, a better idea later. But I was thinking something like that. She's enough to be teenagery. <laughs> And also to still remember because she's like, that, it was very odd because I think she like, she's like, oh, this is my mom, but she's obviously been trained or maybe manipulated like, or been fed lies or, you know, um, not the truth um, in a sense about her. But she comes in so weird, like you said, cold, but she's like, I don't remember the world anymore. Or like, I'm losing it. And so I was just like, well, I mean, I can't remember anything like past, I don't know. I don't remember anything five and below and probably like bits and pieces of like 10 and through five years old. So like, I feel like she had to have been at least, I don't know, seven to 10 maybe when she left. Possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was really young in that um, season finale flashback that we followed from Melanie's therapy session. She looked pretty young. So yeah, I'm going to guess I'm, I'm just going to pretend in my mind that she's like 14 just because that ju- that's that junior high uh, <laughs> transition period. And, and that's a very tough place to be. So you add that kind of complexity on top of surviving an apocalypse and then coming face to face with somebody that, you know, left you behind to die. That's a lot to carry for a 14 year old. <laughs> yeah. And mom kind of saved the world too. So <laughs> right, <laughs> no credit for that though, mom. All right. Then my final question is about, the relationship between Ruth and Andre. We mentioned it a little bit in our character catch up, the idea that these two now are stuck with each other, having to work with each other. But now you add in the Zara revelation and the little bit of ownership that Ruth exerted is maybe the right way to talk about it. Like, like when a strong boy and the other guy were starting to move in on Zara and intimidate her in the night car and Ruth goes and gets Andre and is like, go straighten that out. I mean, it's it, there's, there's one thing to, to protect order and that sort of stuff. But if this guy just kind of screwed up your whole world, a lot of people would be like, fuck that guy, fuck her, whatever. I'm going to go, I'm going to go about my business. But instead she went to Andre and was like, you know, go help her go straighten this out. And then she went one further and got him the better accommodations. So their relationship is evolving in this way that I hadn't really expected to happen so fast. Do you guys have anything to add or, or any questions that any of this brought up in your minds about how this is going to work out? Cause you know, Andre's willing to completely leave Ruth out of this stuff, just saying that this is a military decision, whatever that, whatever that business was. But she seems kind of now willing to invest in him much more than she ever had been. Any of that have you guys asking yourselves any questions or, or um, what did, what did you, what did you guys think about? When you, when you said all that, it just reminded me of um, sort of, and I'm not going to get political or anything, but sort of like, because we just had a chance for power, um, uh, but sort of like those roles where like, I guess like a, like the general, right? like you're going to follow the leader no matter what, even if you don't, you know, necessarily believe in them. Cause like, it's like, and she even says, like Ruth says it, I think in this episode where she's, Hey, I'm basically, I guess, equivalent to like, I'm country first. She's like, I'm trained first, you know, like even every, after everything I did, I think she believed that she was doing it for the good of the train. Mm. And so I feel like she's just one of those people 
that like we, like you mentioned, like she's a service person. I think she's like, well, Andre's my new leader. Um, I'm going to do the best of my ability and, and try to help him in whatever way I can, which was, Hey, we need to talk to the people, like get on that because she could probably know she could see that, you know, train wreck, not, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah and then also like when she like she did, i think she knew something about zara and andre and she's like hey go clean up that laundry it's funny because i think she's just like willing to go all in again because she's like new leader i gotta i gotta obey him even if i you know we didn't see eye to eye because he's gonna essentially be like the good of the train right and but i think for andre he doesn't work that way and so i think she's needs to just keep doing what she's doing and like kind of uh, point out those things where she's good at, Hey, let's do these social things to make sure there's not unrest. And hopefully he'll eventually trust her. But I think she also kind of has to realize like he can't do 180 like she just did because that's the way she works is what I'm grasping. <laughs> I want to acknowledge it, but I don't think I um, fully trust her yet. I think we've left season one with her, it really showing like really, really intense anger, like unvariable kind of anger. It does. It seems like this relationship is severed. Melanie makes a point to say, see you around, which is code for like acknowledging a breakup on the train, apparently. So she gives her the see you around and then you just see her very, very upset. I did not expect her to turn around so quickly and take to action. So I'm a little bit skeptical at this point, but I also know that she is um, true to being head of hospitality. I got to see a little spark in her eye when Andre made a point to be inclusive of her expertise in this space. So maybe that was um, that change in the character's direction and heart and and she just is just such a professional that she is just gracefully executing the protocol for the transition of power scenario because she knows all of the order and the books you know related to snowpiercer's governance in in and out um and so i feel like i'm cautiously optimistic with her right now me too i think all that stuff adds up to that she at least for my own headcanon is is that she intensely wants this order and like it or lump it uh andre's in charge and going through another change is less order <laughs> right every time there's a, a change there's less order so she wants to keep that and the boss man's having a baby so let's 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 work on that problem but i still feel like she is very unhealthily obsessed still with Wilfred, especially now knowing that he's alive still. And that, to me, I don't know, is fits stronger than her desire to participate in a peaceful transition of power as best as she can, given the environment. Where we want to put her on your loyalty meter, Paul, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, because she is so far over to the Wilfred side that she's a vulnerability to Andre. That's what makes their relationship so interesting and worth, worth talking about is that you're right. If Wilford said, you know what, you can come live with me, then (laughs) (laughs) see ya. (laughs) Pretty much. I mean, she had those children reciting like a song and praise, like to be the welcome wagon. Like that to me is a, is a lot. It's a lot. And she's held on to that. That is what she's been holding on to for seven years. Not, peacefully transitioning and holding Andre's hand as he like goes into power. So I think that's why I'm not fully convinced yet that she's on the right path toward um, the democracy. Yeah. 
And she's a little bit unstable when the when her order doesn't go uh, as we've seen. Like when her, I guess her ideology was shattered when she didn't when she figured out it was Melanie and not actually Wilfred, and it, it, like she went off the rails. So like. I think she's she's willing to accept her new purpose, but I also think like one little thing will shatter her, like not being included, you know, and that sort of thing where it could lead down a bad road. And then Wilford, if he knows that, it's, he's going to get into that, I think. If he keeps not including her, that increases the vulnerability that Wilford doesn't even probably even know that he can tap into it without any effort at all. <laughs> Yeah, because I think if Melanie had included her in that lie sort of thing, like, I think she would have been okay. But I think it's like the deceit that really broke her because she is someone that believes firmly in something, it seems like. And then when you when she realized like everything that she believed in was not true, that's what broke her. I think it wasn't necessarily that it was Melanie. I think it was that it was the lie, you know, that kind of, I don't know. That's how I read it, maybe. Mm. But maybe right. it is. And- I don't know. I think if she did decide to move her loyalties to Wilford, I don't think I really would blame her at this point. In her mind, he has kept her safe and alive for the last seven years. And her best friend on the train that she interacts with the most betrayed her trust by giving her feeding her a lie all these years. She doesn't have rapport anymore with Melanie as much. And she definitely doesn't have a relationship with Leighton other than surrendering. But she has an immense connection with Wilfred. I I just, on a really tiny tangent, um, just because this is the the why I empathize so much with her. um, Did you any of you watch The Americans? Just the first couple seasons. I want to watch the whole thing, but it's a fantastic season, and um, this actress plays a character, Martha, who's in the FBI, and she's like the admin secretary for this specific FBI unit. And um, part of the Americans' tactics is one of them basically taps into her and her willingness to be helpful and her desire to serve her country and to do right by the government, and they betray her just like this. So I'm reliving <laughs> that experience with her again, and I think that's also like why I feel like I can feel the turmoil inside and just like the Americans, you know, her life forever changed, um, in that. So I highly recommend you go check it out. And, and it's kind of like tangent here, like her characters are like, the life is not going to be the same as she has to kind of accept and process that. And this actress is so fantastic at feeding that pain and that anger and all of those negative emotions that I would not blame her for siding with Wilfred, but I don't fully trust her right now that she wouldn't run off with him is she one of the uh side pieces that the husband has to keep running uh <laughs> yes <laughs> they, they even like go through like a kama sutra uh book everything it's, it's fun it's just a very different character personality she's very timid and mousy but she goes through the same kind of pain and it's fun watching her play this character who is much more like refined and pristine and and has more authoritative kind of pull but i think the pain um from that kind of betrayal she portrays it beautifully here and i think that's why she to me feels like more of a wild card actually than pike well i think we've covered the first episode don't you guys yeah i'm excited to keep going me too. <laughs> yeah. Me too. All right. Then unless you guys have anything else, then let's uh, let's put a pin in this one and meet up again next time. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, for your coverage of Snowpiercer, this has been Paul. And this is Kat. And this is Inez. 
and we'll catch you next time. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.